Today on this edition of the Forest City Church Podcast, teaching pastor Chad Brugman has part two of the Life After series with a message titled, We Are Easter People. It is incredibly good to be back with you guys every time I'm here, but especially on baptism weekend, man. I am a kid in a candy shop right now because this is one of, especially as a pastor, I mean, this is what you pray for. This is what you work for. This is what you sweat for. This is what you bleed for, is to see life change being manifested in, in, a, in, a, in a way like this. And it's just a beautiful thing. And, and you're going to see by the end of this service that there's just going to be this sense walking out of here of the pleasure of God. We're going to see it even in the scriptures. Baptism just pleases the heart of the Father. And we've got at least 40 or more people so far this morning that have said, I'm baptizing in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we're just going to have a good Sunday. I do got to jump right in because uh, we got to streamline this message uh, today. I'm going to make you English teachers proud of me because I'm going to practice something that you guys taught me uh, in, I think, seventh grade called alliteration. You guys know what I'm talking about, alliteration. I'm going to look at three B's, and these three B's make me incredibly happy. And sometimes when I preach, I just preach kind of selfishly. And I'm like, you know what? This is a, a celebratory day, Baptism Sunday. And so I'm going to look at three B's that are some of my favorite things on planet earth. The first one we're going to look at is, uh, is this breakfast. Anyone with me? Thank you, Jesus for breakfast. Second one is this. I grew up on the beach. We're going to talk about the beach. We're going to talk about breakfast. We're going to talk about the beach. I grew up in a little beach town in California called Santa Cruz, and it was beautiful until my parents changed jobs and moved to Missouri. Dear Jesus. And then I went prodigal. I took it out on God. It wasn't his fault at all. Totally my parents' fault. Took it out on God. And then the last B is the obvious one. We're going to tie it up with uh, baptism as we're looking uh, at what it looks like to live on the other side of the grave. But let me, let me start with breakfast. We know this. This has been a, a pretty uh, big consensus for the last several decades with scientists and particularly nutritionists. What is the, just tell me real quick, even though I've already spoiled it, what is the single most important meal of the day according to nutritionists? breakfast, right? It's for three, they say three fundamental, very basic reasons. Number one, it gets your, mo- get your motor running, right? It gets your metabolism going. And as a 48 year old, metabolism is leaving my life quickly, right? So anything I can do to help the engine out, I'm all about it. It gets your metabolism going. Uh, teachers always like throughout the year will send us emails in our el- to our elementary kids uh, to us parents saying, hey, would you make sure if you can, your kids get a good breakfast before school? Because we know that breakfast, uh, it, it starts to heighten your mental awareness. It makes you more alert in the mornings and ready to learn and ready to take things in, right? And then another thing is they say, I don't believe it because it hasn't worked for me, but they say it also is good because it staves off late uh, lunch cravings and late afternoon cravings. So you eat less, which I just don't. So, But I believe the scientists, whatever. But then there's a fourth fundamental that the scientists left out about breakfast that just blows my mind. And so I am not a scientist or a nutritionist, but I'm about to tell you the fourth reason breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Are you ready for this? Ready. It's because it's amazing. <laughs> Think of what breakfast has contributed to the landscape of our food and our diet, right? Eggs, hash browns, French toast, toast, but then we got French toast, we got waffles, uh, sweet Jesus, I love these Pop-Tarts, help me. Uh, My wife, uh, some of you know, is from Alabama, so this one may be not important to you, but it's hugely important in our house. We have it once a week, biscuits and gravy, thank you, Jesus, thank you. You are good. Good. 
Uh, here, for some of you more snobby people, the crepe, right? Like, whatever, have your moment. The bagel, man, eh, okay. Uh, the omelet, there we go. Fresh fruit for all you healthy people, good for you. And then I say the two best for last. We're not there yet. <laughs> Give me time. Two best for last. Second only to bacon is what you guys walked in and saw hundreds of this morning. Some of you ate one. Some of you abstained, and it took every ounce of discipline within you to abstain. And then a few of you just don't like donuts. And I'm believing you're getting saved today and baptized in the name of Jesus, and we'll have a donut on the way out because it's amazing. It's just bread with sugar in it, right? It's just incredible. And then I saved the best for last, right? Bacon. Just meat from a pig's butt. Thank you, Jesus. In the New Testament, he cleared it, right? We'll read that passage someday, I'm sure. He and I'm just grateful for that. But then here's what happened. My life was altered seven years ago because I lived in Denver, Colorado. There's this place that I went to downtown I'd heard was so good called Voodoo Donuts. And there was voodoo there, trust me. Because when I went in, I wanted my favorite donut, which is just a maple long john bar. That's just my favorite and they go, oh, yeah, we have that, but we have one better for you if you'd like. We go, we have a maple long john donut with a strip of bacon on it. <laughs> and I just started crying. He's <laughs> like, you all right? I was like, can I give you a hug? <laughs> like, both of them. Like, I thought the world was going to implode. I picture, and this is just my weird imagination, I picture Jesus, like, up in heaven being like, did he just put bacon on a maple donut bar? I'm going back to get them, God. This is over. This is done. God's like, hold, son, it's not time yet. He's like, no, that was my idea. That was going to be my big reveal at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I was going to blow their earthly little minds with that, and they've already done it down in Denver. I'm going back to get them, God. He's like, hold, son. It's not time yet. we still got some sinners down there we got to work on, all right? Hold, right? That's how I picture it. Breakfast is absolutely amazing. In fact, it's so amazing. I bet a bunch of you in the last couple weeks had breakfast for dinner. And then other, of a couple, other than a couple broke single guys, I bet none of you had dinner for breakfast. You know what I'm saying? That's how amazing breakfast is. Now let me go all pastoral on you, all right? Let me turn the tables here. This just isn't, this breakfast being the most important meal, I don't think is just a nutritional idea. I think it's a spiritual thing as well. Because the reason breakfast is so amazing, we know this scientifically, is because you have slept six, let's say six to eight hours, Right? So you have fasted for at least the last six to eight hours, maybe more. And when you do that, you wake up and your palate is as sensitive to flavor as it's going to be all day. Your palate will have no more keener of an awareness about flavor than it does in the morning because you have all fasted overnight, right? There's a receptivity to flavor that is at its height in the morning. This is what makes breakfast so amazing. But I also believe this spiritually with all my heart. I believe our souls... And I believe our spirits have a palate. And that there is something in the rhythm of God's grace, in the rhythm of his 24-hour periods of grace he has given us. There's something special about the morning. You see it in the life of Jesus. Like just new, beautiful, awakening things happen in the morning. This is why the gospels tell us Jesus would get up extra early before everyone else and he'd go and he'd just be with his father. It's like there's this, there's this spiritual receptivity we have in the morning that is just fresh and it is new. And we even get an understanding of this in the scripture. This is one of my favorite. I quote it in almost every message because it's so fundamental to my faith. It's Lamentations 3. Because of the Lord's great love for a city church, we are not consumed. 
It goes on to say, for his compassions, most of your Bibles will say, his mercies never fail. And how often and when are they new? Every morning. Great is his faithfulness. The psalmist put it the same way in a different language. He says, yeah, weeping may endure for a night. That's, that's real life. You're going to have some really tough days, some tough weeks, some tough months. Weeping may endure for a night, but guess what? Joy comes when? In the morning. There's something about Jesus in the morning that is just different. It just hits different. And so I want to do this. I started by talking about breakfast, uh, and now we're going to go to the beach because my favorite narrative, post-Easter narrative, in all of the Gospels, without question, is what we're about to read. It's found in John 21, and it's this incredibly important moment where Jesus is going to cook breakfast for his disciples on the beach. That's like double whammy right there. Not only are you getting breakfast, you're getting it on the beach. Oh, yeah, and the chef just happens to be the creator of food. Can't tell me that wasn't the best breakfast in the history of the world, right? But here's why I love this narrative so much. Because the implications are incredible, and it's post-resurrection. And we are going to see in the implications of this story what it looks like to be people who have the privilege of living on this side of the cross and this side of the grave. We're going to see some beauty that comes from the new covenant. So in John 21, it starts like this. After Jesus, again, remember, rose from the dead, the Bible said he would spend about 40 days on earth before he would ascend to heaven. We don't know exactly the time frame in that 40 days when this happened, but it says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two others of his disciples, they were all together. Now, Simon Peter, right, the leader of the church, said to them, I'm going fishing. Now, normally in this passage, you just kind of read that because it seems inconsequential. But we're not going to pass over that too quick because it's incredibly consequential when you understand why Peter's going fishing. And because he's a leader, the rest of the fellas said, uh, well, well, we'll go with you. But, but let's, let's stop there because when, when the apostle Peter says, I'm going fishing, Here's what you got to understand. You got to go back, and Eric did this a little bit, I believe, in Easter. You got to go back and you got to remind yourself what had just happened in the life of Peter. Right before Jesus dies, Peter commits the worst possible sin he could have ever committed in probably his life, in his opinion. Right? He denies Jesus three times on the most important moment and the most vulnerable moment in the life of Jesus right before he's about to go to the cross, and right before he denies him three times, Jesus said, hey, would you come to the garden with me, you, James, and John, as the future leaders of my church? Would you come and would you fight for me in prayer in the garden? We got to throw down. We got a spiritual battle going on. He didn't tell them this, but he knew what they didn't know, which is I'm about to be crucified, and I'm about to take on my shoulders literally every sin, the trillions of sins that would have and will be committed in the history of the world. I'm about to not only take that on my shoulders, but just for icing on the cake, I'm going to be crucified Roman style. So we need to do what we do as believers. We need to fight in prayer because our battle's not against people. Our battle's against uh, uh, spiritual things, right? So, so Peter's like, yeah, we're in. And you know what Peter does when Jesus needs him to, to fight for him in prayer most? He takes a nap the whole prayer time. I've been there. I've done that, right? 
Peter, right before the cross, has not had a good week at all. So now we're on the other side of the cross. We're on the other side of the grave. And Pete does what I think, if we're not careful, if we don't understand the beauty and the power and the, the mercy, mercy behind resurrection, we fall into this cycle oftentimes too. When Pete says, I'm going fishing, you know what he's doing there? He's doing something that I think is an epidemic of a problem in our culture right now, especially post-2020, especially after the pandemic. He's doing this thing called escaping. I think one of the, 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 the biggest things our culture is dealing with and don't even talk about it much or give it much credibility, including us people in the church, post-resurrection people, is just this thing called escapism. Man, I just want to bury my head in the sand and act like none of this is real. I just want to numb out. I just want to keep distracting myself from reality. See, the apostle Peter, before he met Jesus, was a professional what? Fisherman, right? He's good at fishing. He's done that his whole life. He's put food on the table for his family his whole life through fishing. And so what's he do? It's like, I'm just going to escape back to, to I, you know, here, let me put it in sports terms because that's how I think, okay? Peter needed a win. He needed a W. And he had gotten so many L's in the last month in this Jesus thing. Yes, Jesus said, you're going to be the rock on which I build my church. Yes, Jesus gave him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And Peter knew it. And Peter just was in a constant state of feeling like he was never measuring up. So you know what I'm thinking Peter's thinking right now? I'm going to go get a win on my own terms. Or, or let me put it this way. I'm going to take control back into my own hands because this new awesome thing that Jesus called me to, he said, you're not going to fish for fish anymore. You're going to fish for men. I, I Pardon my, my, my uh, vernacular here, but I picture Peter going, I just suck at it. I'm no good at it, but I can really catch fish well. So I'm just going to go fish. I'm going to go, I'm going to go escape for a while. I'm going to go get a W on my own terms. But this is not what resurrection people do. And so let me just ask you real quick, for a city, because we're no different than Peter. We're all human. We all bleed red like he does. We know what these cycles are like. Is there anything right now that you're escaping from, that you're ignoring, that you're burying your head in the proverbial sand on, that you know God is wanting you to look in the eye with resurrection confidence and move forward? Is there anything right now that you are numbing instead of healing? You're putting that worldly Band-Aid on it instead of that spiritual medicine that can only come from the mercy of Jesus Christ. I sure know there's some things in my life right now I'm having to confront, even this week in this message, and preparing and getting ready. I had to ask, the, see, this is what pastors do behind the scenes if they're doing their job. They ask all the hard questions about themselves before we dare get up here and ask any hard questions to you. So this isn't me preaching at you. This is me talking with us. Is there anything right now? And you're just like, man, I'm, 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 I'm just going back to putting control into my own life. I'm trying to get a win on my own terms because I, I, I've been doing the Jesus thing and this faith thing is a lot harder than they told me and I'm in a constant state of feeling like I'm falling short. It could be your job for some of you, escaping. the reality. Some of you, it's relationships. Some of you, it's the drama of life. Some of you, it's just the responsibilities of life. I would even say this. Because this gets hard sometimes. Faith. 
I have a hunch there might be a few people in this room who are listening online, and right now, you're so close or tempted to be escaping from your faith. Come on, we know faith is beautiful. That's why we're here. We're faith people. We know faith is right. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. We, we know that. But, but faith also, uh, James says, is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see. That, that's some serious business you're undertaking there when you're, up, when you're taken uh, under this thing of being a person of faith, is it not? I've had several seasons in my 20-some years of being a, a Christ follower where, if I'm being honest, I'm super tempted to just go proverbially fishing again from my faith. And it's usually when I'm on the back end of a failure, it's usually when I feel like I'm just constantly upsetting the heart of God because I'm always falling short. I know what that feels like. That's why I love the heart of Jesus in this narrative. It's incredible. So here's what goes on to happen. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night, ready for this, they caught nothing. Again, professional fishermen, all night, zero fish. Just as, here it is, day was breaking. When are God's mercies new? Every morning. Just as some of your Bibles will say, at dawn, right when the sun's coming up, because God's mercies are brand new every single morning. Just as day was breaking, here he is, mercy himself, Jesus, stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. I love this. Jesus said to them, so picture, they don't know who this guy is. They're super tired. They're hangry. You ever been hangry? Right? That's real. They're tired. They're hangry. They haven't caught anything all night, and some guy they don't recognize on the shore starts talking some fishing trash to him. And he does it, it feels like condescendingly if they didn't know it was Jesus, right? Because he says, children, call a bunch of grown men children, right? But they don't know it's Jesus. Jesus meant it. It's like, these are my sons in whom I dearly, dearly love. Children, do you have any fish? And then they have to give the answer of shame. It's like the walk of shame. No, but thanks for asking, guy on the beach right? Now, here's what you got to know about Jesus. He knows the end from the beginning, right? He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's what we call omniscient. So Jesus never asks questions he needs the answers to. Jesus only asks questions he needs you to answer for yourself. Jesus is trying to bring some holy self-awareness into this moment. He wants them to see that they're professional fishermen and they've caught what? Nothing. Because he wants them to ask the question, why is that? So they answer him, no. And I wrote in my notes here, Jesus, this is is post-resurrection goodness right here. Jesus in his sovereign goodness will graciously stifle your attempts to go fishing. For fish, when he called you to fish for men. In other words, this, Jesus will graciously stifle your attempts at numbing. Jesus will graciously and mercifully stifle your attempts to hide from him. Jesus will graciously stifle your attempt to make a life and build a life on your own terms and your own control when you are running from him. 
Not because he's mad at you, it's because he's that good. This is exactly what happened. Do you think it was a, an accident or just a coincidence or random that they didn't catch any fish all night, professional fishermen? No, this was the sovereign, gracious, merciful hand of God refusing them to let, allow them, excuse me, to thrive in their own efforts when they had signed up to be post-resurrection, not only people, but pastors. So it's in God's goodness that he's not letting this running thing, this going fishing thing work. And listen to me, Four City, he does the same thing for you and I. Some of you right now might feel incredibly stifled in what you are trying to do, and I just want to throw it out there for you. This isn't for me to answer. This is, this is just for all of us, but it's like, it's like Jesus when he says, hey, do you have any fish, children? You know what he's saying? Hey, how's that going for you? How's trying to take life back into your own hands? And in your own control, how's that working, working out for you? Have you caught a lot? Jesus will graciously and sovereignly stifle our attempts at escapism. He won't let that eight-hour Netflix binge-watching binge session fill your soul to overflowing like you thought it would because the show was so great, right? You'll just be more tired and hangry the next morning. Some of you are, are feeling, right? Like, I binge-watch too. Come on, let's be real. We're in church. So Jesus then says to them, guys, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some, to which I would have been so mad at that point in the boat. Oh, thanks, guy on the beach. Hey, guys, fishermen, pro fishermen, did you hear that? Did you just hear that? He told us to put the net on the other side of the boat, 10 feet on the other side. Like, we haven't tried that all night, sir, but thank you for that. Appreciate it, right? But it's Jesus, and when he says it, you do it, right? You cast the, on the right side of the boat, and he says, you will find some. And I love it. They did it. They cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple who Jesus loved, this is John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And I hear him saying it like this. That's got to be Jesus. How else could this have happened? Come on, we know how to fish. All we did was put it on the other side of the boat. It's not because he, he knew. It's, it's because he spoke. It's because Jesus is here. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, listen to this. I love his spirit. He put on his outer garment, because who doesn't get dressed to jump in the water? He put, well, we're actually about to do that. He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. Let's not pass over that too quick. Do you see how beautiful this is? First of all, he's putting on his outer garment because he's swimming to his rabbi. And in that culture, you in no way, shape, or form would ever be without full clothing around a rabbi. It's a sign of respect. It's a sign of honor. And then not only is it his rabbi, it's the savior of the world. It's the guy who at one point Jesus said, I call you not only my rabbi, I call you my Lord, right? Peter believes. And so he's sprinting to Jesus in his time of need with such awe and such respect on the back end of his biggest mistake. And can I just tell you, this is exactly what you and I are called to do as resurrection people. Not called to do, let me put it in a better way. This is what we get to do. We get to sprint to the throne of grace in our time of need to receive mercy. This is the best possible response. There's not a, so I would say, a walk of shame here or, or a swim of shame. This is Peter swimming away from his shame to the throne of grace. Jesus is our throne of grace. And we've been told in Hebrews 4 that since we have such a high priest, 
right, who's been tempted in every way that we are yet was without sin, we can now approach his throne of grace to receive mercy in our time of need. And if there's one thing in this rough season for the Apostle Peter that he got right, it was this. He just still had that instinct that I know I've messed up. I know I denied him. I know I was asleep when I should have been praying. I know I woke up and over tried, to, tried to overcompensate for not praying by cutting off the soldier's ear in defense of Jesus, and I even got that wrong. Jesus had to put his ear back on. I know that I'm a, sometimes a colossal screw-up, but here's what else I know. When Jesus is on the scene, mercy is on the scene. When, when we were running from him, zero fish were caught. When he came on the scene and we obeyed him and cast the net on the other side, we caught a record number of fish. So Peter throws on his garment in honor and respect and he sprints in his swim to the throne of grace to be with Jesus. And you and I as resurrection people, I know it's weird because we don't deserve it. I know it's counterintuitive to boldly Ask for mercy and grace when you least deserve it, but most need it. But listen to me, this is the new covenant of God. This is the beauty of the resurrection. This is the beauty of Jesus on the cross conquering sin and then in the grave conquering death. We now get to do this radical, extraordinary thing, which is when we least deserve something, but most need it, we get to not only go to Jesus for it, we get to go boldly and we receive it's like a gift. It's nothing that we earn. We just receive his mercy in our time of need. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. We just get to keep coming back and back and back and back to the cross and to the empty grave. It says when they finished breakfast. So I skipped a part. I apologize. I didn't put it up there. But uh, at some point, they all get back in the boat. They get their fish off the boat. And guess what? Jesus starts cooking them breakfast. How beautiful is that? The creator of the universe with these guys that have done next to nothing right in the last month when they should have, Jesus needed them most. He cooks some breakfast. This is something we call in the scriptures hospitality. It doesn't get the credibility it deserves, right? We've talked about that before. It's one of the most beautiful and gracious things you can do because it's disarming. What's more disarming than someone just cooking a meal for you and hosting you in that meal. Peter's at the worst time of his life, and you know what Jesus does? He doesn't make him pay. He cooks him breakfast. This is the heart of God. Jesus is our picture of the invisible, unseen God. You understand that? Colossians says he's the express image of the invisible God. So anytime you wonder what this invisible God we've never seen is like, we look to Jesus to know who God is. And this is who God is. He's the God of perpetual restarts. Can I get an amen for that? Because I am a kid who needs perpetual restarts. Like in 24-hour cycles. Some of you might be week-longers, month-longers. You might be better humans than me. I need them every single day. And Jesus is showing us right here, not only can you sprint to me, the throne of grace, I'll cook you breakfast in the process. I'll let you know how much I care about you. So when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So he said to him, then feed my lambs. I get back to doing what I've called you to do. Get back to living life full. Get back to living life with confidence. 
Get back to living life with a purpose and don't apologize for it. Don't let your mistakes and your failures get in the way. Don't let your shortcomings get in the way. We're, we're, we're resurrection people, so you know what, what, what failure once was an indictment? Do you know what it is now? It's just a teacher. Every one of you in here, please hear me when I say that. Your failures are not indictments under and because of the blood of Jesus. Your failures are now your teachers to begin again wiser, right? Because we serve the God of perpetual, fresh starts. So he says, if you love me, that's all I care about. He doesn't ask him, are you going to obey better? Are you going to quit denying me? Are you going to quit sleeping during prayer time? He doesn't qualify it with anything. The only thing Jesus asks him is this. And again, Jesus already knows the answer. Jesus knows Peter's heart better than Peter does. He's asking this so Peter, because remember how many times he denied him? Three. So how many times is he going to ask him if he loves him? Three. We have a term for this in, in Christianity. It's called renewing your mind. Jesus is being so kind to him. So he says again, second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord. You can almost hear him getting a little bit like frustrated. Like, you know that I love you. You know everything, Lord. You know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep then. Get back at it. Quit playing small. Quit numbing. Quit feeling sorry for yourself. Quit trying to, here's one, quit trying to pay penance. You ever do that with God on the back end of a big mistake? Like, God, you've got to be so annoyed with me. I'll tell you what, I'll talk to you in a couple weeks. I'm going to go fishing until then because I feel really bad and really stupid and I need a win right now. So I'm going to try and go get one on my own terms. I'll give you about a two-week cooling off period and then you and me will get serious again. And Jesus is having none of it. It's like the worst thing you can do on the back end of mistakes and failures is run from Jesus. We're resurrection people. We've been given bold permission to run to him. This is what we do. And so he asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, then feed my sheep. Jesus knew about Peter what he knows about you and I. He didn't deny him because he didn't love him or care about him. He sinned against him because he was afraid. See, fear is the free way to sin. Peter wasn't malicious. He wasn't being rebellious on purpose. He's afraid. And I think so much of our falling short for a city isn't you being malicious. It's not you being rebellious. It's you're just afraid. So you miss the mark. I do it all the time. And Jesus knows that about us. And he says, listen, growth is not going to come from you just stirring up some pseudo sense of courageous and bravery so you're not afraid anymore. Fear isn't going to be conquered by you just trying to talk yourself into being more courageous. Fear is going to be conquered the more and more and more you come to my throne of grace. Because the more and more you come to my throne of grace, the more and more you're going to sense the unconditional love of God. And John would go on to tell us that it's perfect love that casts out all fear, not perfect behavior. And the only way to understand the unconditional, perfected love of the God we serve is to constantly tap into his storehouse of kindness and mercy. That's it. 
I wish if there was a different path or a plan B, I would be up here spitting and preaching and pounding the pulpit as hard as I could, telling you another way to do it. But the only thing that has given me any spiritual depth or maturity or intimacy with God in my life is just this constant profound understanding of how unconditionally I am loved, how much good he gives me when I least deserve it, but most need it. This is why preaching the grace of God relentlessly is not watering down the gospel. It is presenting the gospel. It is the grace of God, Titus 2 says, that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live upright lives in this present evil age. So I will continue as a resurrection person to just proclaim the goodness of the newness of the kingdom of God that you and I get to be a part of. And we have to get over ourselves, y'all. And we have to stop thinking it's about us. We have to stop thinking that we have to qualify. We have to stop thinking that we have to earn something or strive for something. And we need to rest in the fact that every sin, pre and post, cross has been paid for in full. And when you come up out of those baptism waters, most of you in here, you've already done that thing. When you come up out of those baptism waters, you are making a, a divine proclamation that sin is dead. Paul said, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive in Christ. You are dead to sin. Yeah, Chad, but I, I, I just messed up. I sinned last night. If you knew what happened last, you are dead to sin. If you have been given the grace of Jesus Christ, it is no longer you. It's not who you are. It's not your identity. We're resurrection people. And there's at least 40 of you. And I think there's more in here who are going to make a decision to be baptized today that are going to be baptized. So let's just remind ourselves about the beauty of this moment because baptism is, is uh, uh, always usually in evangelical circles painted as just this beautiful metaphor and this symbolic sacred gesture that we have towards God for what Jesus did in the grave. And I got to tell you, that's true, but it's only half the truth. It's a beautiful metaphor for the resurrection, baptism, coming up out of those waters, being buried in sin and coming up out of those waters in life. It's a beautiful metaphor. It's a beautiful symbol. It's sacred, and I'm grateful for that. But you know what? Something unseen yet profoundly spiritual happens when we baptize people. This is not just a cool moment symbolizing something. Heavens open when baptisms take place. So why do we baptize people? Why is it one of the two big sacraments we have in the church along with communion? It's this, Jesus commanded it. Jesus said in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am, here's resurrection promise, I am with you always to the end of the age. Isn't it amazing that as Jesus is getting ready to ascend back to heaven, the last thing he says is go baptize people? You can't tell me that's just symbolic. You can't tell me that's just some small, neat little thing we do for good fills in church and to have a neat little celebration on Sunday. No, something profoundly spiritual happens when you cross over in baptism from death to life. Jesus didn't just command it, though. Here's an even bigger statement for the beauty of baptism. Jesus modeled it. The spotless lamb, the sinless son of God, still felt the need to be baptized. Don't take my word for it. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan 
to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, I would have too, I get it, by saying, no, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus answered John, he said, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for this to fulfill all righteousness. There's some kind of, and it's mysterious to me, but there's some kind of fulfillment that at least 40 of you are gonna be making today in God's righteousness. And that is a beautiful thing, a fullness, a fulfillment. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, look what happens. Immediately when he came up from the water, behold, what happened? The heavens were open. This wasn't just some symbol. Like spiritually profound things happen on baptism. The heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming down to rest on him, which is going to happen to every single person in the name of Jesus that gets baptized today. And behold, and this is my favorite part, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am what? Well pleased. We are about to please the heart of the Father at least 40 times over. And for every one of you being baptized, will you just accept this by faith every single day for the rest of your life? He calls you son. God said, this is my son and I'm so pleased. Would you hear that today when you're being baptized? Family members and friends celebrating with them. Would you hear that over the people being baptized? This is my son. This is my daughter. And I am so incredibly pleased with them for their obedience. So pleased. So I'm going to end with this. And then a bunch of you are going to go out these doors over here and you're going to go and you're going to get checked in and we are going to start this holy celebration. Paul in Romans chapter six teaches us a lot. This beautiful language says, so what do we do? Keep on sinning so that God can keep on forgiving. I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still then live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good. This is what happens in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. We are lowered into the water. It is like the burial of Jesus. When we are raised up out of the water, it's like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our fathers so we can see where we are going in our, I love this, our new grace, sovereign country. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ, a decisive end to that sin-miserable life, no longer captive to sin demands. What we believe is this, and here's where we conclude. If we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Would you guys stand? We're going to do this. If you're one of the 40, uh, would you go and would you walk? We have out that door right there, we'll have a, a couple of amazing staff members that are going to check you in and get you ready. But I also want to encourage some of you that have never been baptized and you didn't sign up for this and you're thinking to yourself, I actually feel the Spirit of God compelling me to be baptized today, but I didn't bring any stuff. I don't have clothes like them. Well, guess what? We bought clothes for you. We've got clothes, we've got towels, and most importantly, we've got water. 
So if you are feeling compelled by the Holy Spirit of God in this moment to be baptized, do you just know you don't need to be afraid? You don't need to fear these crowds because you know what this crowd is? We are here to celebrate with you. We are here to rejoice with you. But more than any of that, do it just because it pleases your Father. Do it because of his amazing grace and mercy. Something profoundly spiritual in your heart and life is going to happen on the other side of that pool today, the other side of those waters. When you come out, I can't tell you how, I can't tell you why, I can just tell you what the Word of God just told us. Heavens are going to open and the dove like the Spirit is going to descend and you are never going to be the same again. So Jesus, as we begin to worship you, as we begin to celebrate, as we begin to watch these people, and as we begin to sing beautiful words and songs to you, Father, would you just be here in such a special way? And I pray every single one of us walks out of here so much better and fuller than we walked in. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Let's baptize some people. You've been listening to Chad Brugman with a message titled, We Are Easter People. Thanks for listening.